Our great God and Father in heaven, this is a precious promise to which we cling, that we will dwell in your house forevermore. We are thankful, O God, for your love and your grace, for your mercy and goodness, for your sovereign redemption and providence that assures us that this promise is true and will be accomplished in our own lives. Thank you, O God, for all that you are, for all that you have done for us We thank You, O God, and praise You for who You have made Yourself known to be in our lives. A God of grace and glory, a Redeemer, a Savior, the One who loved us first and who loves us best, who loved a people in Christ before the foundation of the world, and who will love them beyond the end of this present world. We thank You, O God, for Your Word that is truth and for the way in which you use it to sanctify us in our faith and in our souls. We are thankful, O God, for the freedoms that we enjoy, for the prosperity that we often take for granted, for the health and strength that permits us to be here even tonight. We ask your blessing upon our nation, O God, for we are a sinful and disobedient people, a proud people. We stand this evening on the cusp of yet another annual celebration of perversity. And each year, O God, it seems as though our society and nation are more hell-bent on their own destruction than they were the year before. We pray, O God, that you would work by your word and spirit to bring repentance and revival, a return to sanity, O God, and a return from the path of destruction that we are plunging upon. We pray, O God, that you would raise up God-fearing men to lead us, and we pray that you would cause your church to be faithful and steadfast in the face of perversity and rebellion. Please bless your church, O God, throughout the world. Make her strong and holy, beautiful. Continue to reform her according to the teaching of your word. Help her to stand positively for that which is true and good and right and beautiful. We pray your blessings upon our own congregation, that you would be with us, uh, that you would continue to make the ministry here faithful and fruitful. O God, bless the work, even of the next couple of weeks, as Dane and Caleb serve this body. We pray that they would do so well and faithfully and fruitfully and that your saints would be greatly encouraged by their ministry. We pray for the meeting of our General Assembly in the OPC, that you would grant safety to all of those who will gather for that meeting. We pray for wisdom and for the blessing of your Spirit upon all of those proceedings and the decisions that are made. We pray, O God, for your blessing upon our study of your word this night, that you would teach us, that you would stretch our minds, make our hearts wise, cause any error to fall from our memory, and cause your word to be a bright and shining lamp to our feet, that we may know the way in which we should go. Bless us, we pray, and be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So you have the third installment of this part of our series, Introducing Christian Ethics. We've taken four weeks uh, for this study. We could have taken uh, much longer, obviously, but this is meant to be kind of a cursory introduction, uh, hopefully helpful in thinking through some of these ideas, but by no means uh, exhaustive or even, in many respects, 
comprehensive. Next week we'll start uh, our summer series for Wednesday evenings where we're going to be taking selections from church history and Dane and Caleb and I will be rotating through that material Uh, and so you'll see all three of us up here although not all at the same time. We're not going to like compete in quite that way but uh, we'll take turns as uh, Paul said the prophets should do right. So this will be the the end of this study tonight. Uh, The entire handout is available in the online resource folder, but we've been working our way through the last three weeks through a 12-point summary outline uh, prepared by Dr. Greg Bonson uh, many years ago uh, as an introduction to a theonomic approach to Christian ethics. Now, this third session is going to be, uh, in many ways, the most difficult to navigate just because these are the, the points, finally, that are most controversial. And yet, as I've said the last two weeks, and I'll say again here at the beginning of our study tonight, I really don't think most of this should be controversial. It's in the application that it becomes so. It's in the details that we find areas of disagreement. And that is not necessarily a bad thing. It's not as if disagreement about the doctrine of God is a good thing, but it is a useful thing because it sharpens us, it stretches us, it challenges us. It drives us back to the Word. It can improve us and improve our understanding. If we are all on the same page on everything all of the time, that might in some ways uh, at least potentially hinder our growth. And so for whatever reason in God's good providence, He's chosen during this present age to allow some measure of disagreement in the visible church. And uh, we trust that that is for our sanctification and growth in grace. I think that there are going to be two places tonight uh, in this portion of the material that you might have a little bit of hesitation or you might have to think through it a little bit more carefully. And I would say, again, that what we're trying to do is set forth a general introduction to an outline of a theonomic ethic. I believe and have said before that any Christian who takes God and his word seriously, who believes that the Bible is authoritative, who believes that God has established a moral law that is binding on all people in all places and at all times, is to that extent theonomic. And so in some respects, even to talk about theonomy might seem to be a, a, a bit of a misnomer because, well, if, if all conservatively-minded Christians are theonomic, then what is distinctive about theonomy? But, of course, there have been distinctive cases made under the name of theonomy, and yet even under that banner, under that category, not all of the positions are monolithic. There is debate. There is diversity. I have found a great deal of help in some of the critics of Dr. Bonson, in some of the critiques of theonomy, and I continue to read those and try to profit from them. It's not to suggest that any particular version of a theonomic ethic is being advocated in these series of studies, and it may be something that you continue to wrestle with even for the rest of your life. That'll be okay. It is a good thing for us to wrestle with and meditate upon. I want to start tonight by reading um, from two passages of Scripture, the first one in Psalm 82 and the second reading from Deuteronomy 16 and 17. I won't be reading all of those chapters, obviously, but just selections from them. Both of these are proof texts, uh, so-called, for the first point, uh, and I think in many ways will serve uh, as an adequate introduction for the whole. So Psalm 82, this is a psalm, by the way, there's a lot to say about this psalm, Um, its interpretation is sharply contested in New Testament studies today 
for the reason that Jesus uh, uh, quotes the psalm and interprets the psalm in John chapter 10, and he quotes it in a different way than most modern interpreters take it. Uh, so it is, it is a bit controversial, even in Old Testament studies as well, uh, for reasons that are not germane for our study tonight. But for all that could be said, what you need to know right now is that very clearly it is a psalm that speaks to those who are in a position of judgment, uh, a position of justice, a position of magisterial authority. And listen to what the Word of God says. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. Uh, Yahweh stands in the congregation of the mighty, He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. uh, Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men. And fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Now you might note that the Lord, God, is judging among the gods, plural, in verse 1. And yet when Jesus interprets this in John chapter 10, he interprets it with regard to the rulers of the people of Israel. And so whatever else we might be able to say about this passage in terms of uh, demonic uh, or spirit beings, at the very least, this is a passage that the Lord would say applied to those who had been given authority over his people. And what is their obligation? They are to execute justice. They are to defend the poor and fatherless. They are to do justice to the afflicted and needy. They are to deliver the needy from those who would be their oppressors. And yet it is ultimately God who will judge the earth whether the earthly magistrates do so well or not. Now, over in the book of Deuteronomy, I want you to notice one verse in chapter 16 and then several verses in chapter 17. So Deuteronomy chapter 16, I'm going to be reading verse 18. Moses writes under inspiration and he says this, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which Yahweh your God gives you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. I want you to be thinking about the question, what is that? What is just judgment? And how could anyone know? And then in chapter 17, I'm going to begin reading at verse 8 and continue down through verse 13. In verse 8 of chapter 17 in Deuteronomy, If a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge, between degrees of guilt for bloodshed, between one judgment or another, or between one punishment or another, matters of controversy within your gates, then you shall arise and go up to the place which Yahweh your God chooses, and you shall come to the priests, the Levites, and to the judge there in those days, and inquire of them. They shall pronounce upon you the sentence of judgment." You shall do according to the sentence which they pronounce upon you in that place which Yahweh chooses, and you shall be careful to do according to all that they offer you. According to the sentence of the law in which they instruct you, according to the judgment which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left from the sentence which they pronounce upon you. Now the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands to minister there before Yahweh your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall put away the evil from Israel, and all the people shall hear and fear and no longer act presumptuously. Now, 
Two things to say about this. One that's going to come up later in our study tonight. Notice that one of the areas of difficulty that might arise, verse 8, is in choosing which punishment is appropriate. One of the critiques of Dr. Bonson's theonomic position is that it admits of no or too little discretion in its penology, in its doctrine of punishment. Now, I'm not sure that that's actually true, uh, but if it is true or to any extent that it might be true, that might be one area where I would disagree uh, at least to some extent with Dr. Bonson's formulation of theonomy because I think that Deuteronomy itself, as well as the book of Numbers, as well as the later historical illustrations of the application of God's law to Israel demonstrates that there was judicial discretion in the application of punishment. That's one of the reasons that in the book of Numbers, the Lord says you are not to accept any ransom for someone who's guilty of premeditated murder. But it does imply that ransoms and substitutes were permitted in other capital cases. The law of God in the Old Testament uh, describes 17 areas of capital crime. And so only one of those is said to be without any judicial discretion in sentencing. I think this is one of a number of texts that we could look at that show that that judicial latitude existed in all other cases or in many other cases, maybe we should say. The second thing that I want you to notice is that if the matter was too difficult for the magistrate, he was to appeal the case to those who knew the law of God, to those who had the word of God, in this case, the priests and the Levites, the students of Scripture. It does not put the priests in the position of magisterial authority. Do you see that? The priest is not the judge in the town. The Levites are not the ones administering justice in the courts. It is not confusing or collapsing separate spheres that we would refer to as church and state. It is distinguishing those spheres. In fact, the instructions depend upon that distinction and separation. And yet separation is not without cooperation. And if a magistrate was uncertain of what he should do in a given case, where was he to look in order to determine what just judgment would require in that matter? Remember, that was the question from chapter 16, verse 18. They are to judge with just judgment. Fine. What does that look like? Who determines that? Chapter 17 answers that question. When you have a situation where you cannot figure out what crime is this person guilty of, was this premeditated murder or is it manslaughter? Is this a case where we should apply the maximum penalty prescribed in the law or is there mitigating factors in the case that might allow for a lesser sentence? How are we to proceed in adjudicating this case? His appeal was always to be to the law of God. And it wasn't that the priest would then become the Supreme Court and he would administer justice. It's that he would counsel the magistrate with the word of God. He would tell them what the word of God would guide the magistrate to do in that matter. Now let's come to our study outline tonight, and I hope you'll see that these, uh, these three passages will be useful, not just in the first one, but to some extent in all of them. So we've come tonight to point nine, having already worked through the first eight. Point nine says this, civil magistrates in all ages and places are obligated to conduct their offices as servants of God, as agents of divine wrath against criminals 
And as those who must give an account on the final day of their service before the King of Kings, their creator and judge. If there's something controversial about that, I'm not sure what it ought to be. I want you to notice that theonomy, at least in the kind of vanilla form that we are introducing it here, it doesn't prescribe a particular government system. Now, it might proscribe, that is, forbid or argue against certain kinds of government systems that are, for example, inherently, innately totalitarian, abusive, do not uphold the principles of justice that are encoded in the law. There are a number of kinds of governments that you you might say, well, you you can't have a biblically ordered society in that system. For example, socialism is government-sponsored covetousness and theft, right? So there's no way to reconcile those two. You can choose between having a scriptural society or a socialist society, but you can't have both at the same time, right? That's just one example. But it's not as if the law of God mandates then a monarchy or an oligarchy or a constitutional republic or a pure democracy, which would be pretty chaotic, but, you know, It's not as if a particular form of government is prescribed, but what it does say is that the government and the governors who are in those positions of authority are to do their job, they are to do their work under the sovereign judgment and governance of God. They are to recognize that they are ministers of God in that role. That is what Romans 13 says. It says they are ministers, deacons in the the original language, right? They're deacons of wrath. They are deacons of justice. That's what the president is supposed to be. That's what the governor is supposed to be. It's not just your executive agencies. It's not just your law enforcement components. It is all of your magistrates are put into positions of authority by God to uphold and pursue justice. And they will give an account on the last day. This is what Nebuchadnezzar did not realize that led to his humiliation in Daniel chapter 4. He did not acknowledge that there is a God above all gods before whom all kings must bow. And it is the very point that is at issue, the very point that's being contested in Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. The kings and the rulers are plotting to cast off the cords, to cast off the authority of God that binds them. And yet, what does the, what does the psalm say? It says, nevertheless, the Lord has set his king on Zion's holy hill. And then what do they counsel the kings of the earth? Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and destroy you. That is, by the way, by definition, by context, by New Testament interpretation. The psalm is quoted in Acts chapter 4 and applied by the apostles in their prayer there. That is, by definition, not the kings of Israel. It's the kings of the Gentiles. It's the kings of the nations. It's the president of the United States. It's Pontius Pilate. It's the emperor of Rome. It's the supreme leader of North Korea. 
It's every earthly magistrate who is in a position of authority, who seeks to rebel against God's authority, he is told, bow the knee to Christ or be destroyed. Be wise. Bow the knee to Christ. There is no neutrality in high places. There is no possibility of neutrality. Either the magistrate is going to uphold justice or he is going to undermine it. There's nothing else that you can do. You can either uphold justice as a magistrate or you can undermine it. Who decides what is just? Every person is going to be judged by God for how they lived, and that includes the civil magistrates. Because after all, Jesus is Lord of all lords. You know what our governor is? She is a lord. That's what she is, biblically speaking. It's kind of an awkward thing, but there it is, right? She is a lord. But there is a lord above that lord. Who is our president? He is is a lord. He's a man of authority, but he's also a man under authority. Jesus is sovereign, not just of the church, but of the nations. Your Bible says so. There's nothing here that should be controversial. Where should non-Israelite judges look for guidance to exercise their authority righteously? The answer is the law of God. Now, this is where one of the disagreements is going to arise. But again, at this point, it doesn't have to be a contentious disagreement. The answer is the law of God. That is where non-Christian, unbelieving, pagan rulers are to look to understand justice. They may not be looking at the Bible. They may not be asking their local church. They may simply be looking at natural law as it is written upon every person's heart and as it is woven into the fabric of the universe, but it is nevertheless the law of God that ultimately is to guide them in exercising that authority righteously. The question is, how well can unregenerate men, looking only at general revelation, perceive that law? At some point, you are going to have to make an appeal to the clearer revelation of that law. And they are to find that in the ministry of the church as it proclaims and applies the Scriptures. That's what you're seeing in Deuteronomy chapter 17. It does not mean that the church is over the state. It means that the church is a prophet to the state. It does not mean that pastors are presidents. It means that pastors are to preach truth to presidents. When John the Baptist confronts Herod Antipas, he says it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. What business does John have in saying that? He is sent by God. And he is commanding Herod for the kind of incestuous marriage that was really quite common in the Greco-Roman world and yet was nevertheless unlawful. John was executed for the offense of fulfilling his ministry. And Herod Antipas, barring some deathbed conversion that we know nothing about, is in hell right now for disregarding the law of God. The question I would ask is, are pagan rulers free to define justice as they please? Can unbelieving magistrates determine the government's jurisdiction and power and goals independent of God's revealed law? Well, of course, they do all the time, don't they? They decide for themselves what their jurisdiction covers, what powers they have, and what the goals of government ought to be. But what is ultimately to determine that? 
not the unbelieving ambitions of unregenerate men, but rather the revealed law of God. And it's not as if, on this point, the natural law is any different from special revelation. It's not as if the law written upon the heart of the unbeliever is telling them something different than what they would learn in the Bible. It's not as if there is a difference fundamentally between what the Old Testament revelation of that law would teach them as opposed to the New Testament revelation of that law. I I was reading even today uh, further critiques of theonomy, trying to figure out where where my error lies, right? And and one of the scholars who I I greatly respect on many, many other points, but but he he was discussing this as if there was a substantive difference between the Old Testament application of the law and the New Testament application of the law. He went so far as to say theonomy's error is in claiming that magistrates are to judge what is right and just based upon the Old Testament and not at all on the New Testament. And I thought, who is doing that? Like, if you could find me someone who's actually saying that, I would be happy to disagree with them. Pay no attention to your New Testament. Just rip it right out of the Bible. Only pay attention to the Old Testament, especially the Pentateuch. Who's saying that? No, no, no. What theonomists are saying is that the law in the Old Testament is the law in the New Testament. Oh, sure, there are historical differences. There are cultural differences. There are covenantal differences. There are discontinuities, as we've talked about a lot. But the fundamental law, justice, what justice is, what righteousness consists of, it's the same. It's the same. So in Israel, they had a hard case. They would have to go to the Word of God to figure out what justice consisted of in that case. But but unbelievers, they just, they do what? They go to the World Economic Forum to figure it out? They call up the United Nations? They just make something up out of their own head? What are, they, what are they supposed to do? You say, well, that's all well and good for Israel, but you would never want an unbelieving magistrate to go to a pastor or to go to a church and ask, what, is, what would God have us to do in this situation? Yeah, you'd never want that. That'd be terrible. Point 10. The general continuity that we presume with respect to the moral standards of the Old Testament applies equally to matters of socio-political ethics as it does to personal family or ecclesiastical ethics. Now, this is a point it would be easy to misunderstand if you don't read that carefully. Let me read it again and make sure that we understand it word by word. The general continuity that we presume, this is something we talked about last week, do we assume continuity or discontinuity when we are reading the Old and New Testaments? Do we assume that the things God wanted of the people in the Old Testament he continues to want in the New Testament unless something in the New Testament teaches us otherwise? Or do we assume that he has to repeat everything that he wants to continue? In the New Testament, we've got a lot of passages talking about discontinuities. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. The temple is fulfilled in Christ. The priesthood is fulfilled in Christ. We're no longer to be judged based upon what we eat or drink or on the Jewish calendar. How do you know that those things have changed in the New Testament? You know it because the New Testament tells you. But do you assume continuity or discontinuity? It seems like we should assume continuity and allow the New Testament to tell us where God has 
changed the administration of a particular aspect of the law that he gave to Israel. So we're assuming that general continuity with respect, notice, to the moral standards of the Old Testament. In other words, we continue every first Lord's Day of the month, just as you'll do on Sunday, to read together corporately the Ten Commandments. And it's not because we think that we are the new Israel as Americans. It's not because we think that uh, you know, we, we are to keep all of the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. It's because we believe that the Ten Commandments are a summary of the moral law that continues to be applicable to all people in all places and at all times. We realize that there are some differences. They kept a seventh-day Sabbath. We don't do that. But in terms of the moral substance of the law, we believe that that's unchanged. Now, that continuity that we assume with regard to moral standards in personal, family, and ecclesiastical matters is also assumed with regard to socio-political ethics. Do you see that? You assume that the moral law for your own life, for your family, and for your church continues unbroken. You assume that unless God tells you otherwise. And the claim is that the same continuity should be assumed in terms of socio-political matters. And my question would be, if not, why not? If you say, well, no, Pastor, I think that with regard to my life, with regard to my family, with regard to my church, yes, we can assume continuity. But with regard to the society, with regard to the nation, with regard to to the civil sphere, we need to assume discontinuity and just kind of assume that everything we've got a blank slate and we're starting over and God's going to have to tell us anew in the New Testament how to do everything. Why? Why is that different? Are they determined by a different standard in the Old Testament? Is the public square morally neutral? Or is it under Christ's jurisdiction? And if it's under Christ's jurisdiction, well, why would we assume that Jesus is expecting something substantively different of human societies today than he was expecting in the Old Testament where we have prophets who are addressing the moral errors and failings and transgressions of the Gentiles. What have we said as we studied through the prophetic literature? Almost every book of Old Testament prophecy has a section, small or large, addressing the nations outside of Israel, talking about their rebellion against God, adjudicating that, pronouncing judgment upon that. If we have that reality that God is governing moral matters among the nations in the Old Testament... Why do we assume that there's discontinuity in the New Testament? By what standard would it be rightly governed, that is, the human society, if it is not governed by the standard that God has revealed? Distinctions in kinds of law are appropriate observations, but that does not mean that they are biblically explicit or separate categories. Now, here I need to explain what I mean because I had to use a little bit of shorthand. When we observe that God gave to Israel a law, and within that law, we can distinguish what is moral and judicial and ceremonial. When we make those observations, we're making completely appropriate observations. Yes, good. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's not just true for Israel, and it's not just true for people living then. It's true for all people in all places and at all times. But there are particular applications of that law that, there might, that, that might be associated with historical Israel that are not 
binding upon other nations in exactly the same way. I would say, for example, the prescription of stoning would be one of those features, right, for reasons that we could get into but we won't tonight. Uh, The cities of refuge, the specific location of those cities. Well, obviously, the specific location is given based upon Israel's geography, And if you're in another nation, you're going to have to make some kind of transition, translation, application of those ideas. Now, we observe there's a difference between the moral and judicial and between the judicial and the ceremonial, but it's not as if the Bible has called that out for us. It's not as if on the the manuscripts that were handed down uh, by God through Moses and the prophets that they were color-coded, you know? And all of the sections in blue, that's moral. And all of the sections in green, that's judicial. And all of the sections in red, that's ceremonial. That, that would have been great, but that's not how that works. These are not biblically explicit categories, and they're not entirely separate categories either. Because what is the judicial law that God gave to Israel? It is a particular civil historical application of the moral law. That doesn't mean that there are no changes that might have to be made in terms of application when we take those same principles and drop them into another place at another time to another people, but it does mean that all the judicial law is is really uh, an application of the principles of justice, the principles of the moral law, some of the principles of the ceremonial law applied specifically to Israel. And that's why we are no longer bound by rules about eating shellfish, for example, But it is why, if you have a swimming pool, you ought to have a fence around it, right? Because there are continuities and discontinuities, and the continuity that we assume in every other area of the moral law of God, we ought to assume with regard to the moral aspects of the socio-political law as well. Number 11, this is where we get into the juicy stuff. The civil precepts of the Old Testament... And by that we mean the standing judicial laws are a model of perfect social justice for all cultures, even in the punishment of criminals. Outside of those areas where God's law prescribes their intervention and application of penal redress, civil rulers are not authorized to legislate or use coercion. For example, in the economic marketplace. I've given you a lot of proof texts there. We don't have time to go into most of them. But one of the things that I want you to see as you review those in your own time is that Israel, first of all, was to be an example to all of the nations. And specifically, they were to observe the superiority of her law and society. That's one of the things Moses says would be noticed by the Gentiles. What nation has laws like these? and they would be admired by all of the surrounding peoples. More than that, Isaiah, Micah, Zechariah, Zephaniah, all envision the nations coming to Jerusalem in order to learn the law of God and to walk in it. And in case you think, well, but that's really the law of Christ, isn't it? It's not the Old Testament system. Yes, But it's not as if the law of Christ is something other than that Old Testament system finding its fulfillment in the gospel and great commission because, as Zechariah points out, the nations will come and they will observe the Feast of Tabernacles, which last I checked is part of the ceremonial law. 
but makes very, very clear that when we talk about the nations coming to Jerusalem and learning the law, we're talking about the law that's in Exodus to Deuteronomy. It's in Exodus to Deuteronomy. And the prophets say it is going to be embraced by the nations one day. That happens through the Great Commission. That happens under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, there are ceremonial discontinuities and fulfillment patterns and translation of judicial ideas, all of that. But it's the same law. It's not a different one. There are three claims made in this point, which I think are the key points of controversy regarding theonomy. So I want to call them out just to make sure you don't miss them. First that the judicial law, that is the civil law given to Israel, is a model of perfect social justice for all cultures. I hate the fact that social justice means something different today than it ought to actually mean. Like if I said that I'm an advocate for social justice, like there'd be an elders meeting tomorrow, right? Praise God, by the way, that you've got elders that would care enough to say, We need to sit him down, right? But shouldn't we actually care about social justice? Or are we supposed to be indifferent to social injustice? Well, no. We should care about social justice. The question is, how do you know what social justice looks like? What does it consist of? How could you possibly figure it out? Well, what if there was a society that God had regulated as a model for all other societies on earth? That is not to say that the other nations were to build temples and build altars and offer animal sacrifices and have something like a Levitical priesthood and to keep all of the ceremonies and shadows and types. That's not what we're saying. We're not even saying, again, that we should take the book of Deuteronomy and drop it in toto on the U.S. criminal code. But, but, these passages describe Israel's Law, Israel's society, Israel's regulation by God as a model for other nations outside of Israel that would eventually be embraced by those nations. And at the very least, how could anyone argue that Israel, as as viewed through the law that God was giving to her, that Israel would be a perfect model of social justice in a sin-filled world. That doesn't mean that Israel ever lived up to this. I mean, like, you've read the rest of the Old Testament. You realize, like, Israel is not a good example of justice at all. But the law given to her in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy actually is. Like, what would a just society look like? Well, read your Bible. Your Bible describes it. By what authority can governments develop a better system, a more just system? Where could they look to find a better model, a more appropriate model? Again, this is where we're talking about vanilla theonomy. All we're saying is that nations should aspire to a similar system of justice to the one that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament. And you think that's a bad idea because... Why? Because those laws were unjust? Because the ethic is inferior? Because nations today can do better? Tomorrow's the beginning of Pride Month, you know. Right? How are we doing? 
Not so hot. That's the first controversial claim. The second one in this point is this. It also serves as a model of perfect social justice even in the punishment of criminals. This is what Bonson's theonomy is most often associated with. Again, I'm not sure that all of the critiques of Bonson on this point are actually fair to Dr. Bonson. But I would argue, maybe beyond what Dr. Bonson has said, that the law of God found in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy assumes judicial discretion in the punishment of criminals, except in certain specified cases. In other words, I think that that latitude is baked into the cake. I think in many cases, the law is defining the maximum penalty, not the mandatory penalty. That's the kind of exegetical and hermeneutical conversation that we can have when we all agree with the basic principles related to the law of God. And unfortunately, the church is not at that point. (laughs) I don't mean this church, although that's true as well. I mean the church in general, right? Um, The law of God is a model of what just punishment looks like. I know that that's super controversial. I just can't figure out why. Like, why? Why is that controversial? So, uh, there's a lot I want to say about that, but I'm not sure I should right now. Is it a model of justice in terms of the laws, but the punishments themselves are the problem? The punishments are defective. So we should have laws against adultery, but we shouldn't punish adulterers, for example. Laws against sodomy, but we shouldn't punish sodomites. Not all of them were executed, by the way, under the law of God. That's a common misconception. We need to read our Old Testament a little more carefully, but regardless. Um, the punishments are defective. So, so having a mandatory penalty of capital punishment for judicially proven premeditated murder, that's a bad idea. Why? We have a, we have a better model. By the way... In a, in, a, in a biblically ordered society, you would have far fewer convictions. You have a much higher threshold. You would have many fewer wrong convictions, which are based on inadequate standards of evidence. You'd actually have fewer convictions in the criminal justice system. You'd have fewer charges brought to trial because you could not meet the threshold. The law of God actually places a premium on the rights of the accused to the extent of letting guilty people go free rather than punish the innocent. So this cuts both ways. I realize that people, that people hear theonomy and they think Sharia law. They think we're just going to be stoning people right and left. Well, first of all, that's not what was happening in Israel, and it's not even what should have been happening in Israel, according to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But right now, you have a prison system that is entirely without biblical precedent, in which people, for all kinds of crimes, including nonviolent crimes, are treated like zoo animals and fed and housed at taxpayer expense And the result is increased rates of recidivism. So, if you want to argue that the punishments prescribed in the Old Testament law are somehow unjust or defective or irrelevant for us today, I am happy to listen to an argument as to why our punishments 
are better or why some other model should be embraced instead. The third controversial place is this. Civil rulers have no authority to legislate or coerce behavior outside of theonomic prescriptions for intervention and action. I will say this. I'm fully convinced of this point. I would be happy to have an extended conversation with you about it. I have 10 minutes left. I'm not going to have it right now. I will say I think you could even drop that point. And if you embrace the 11 and a half other points that I've suggested to you over the last three weeks, I'm happy. I'm happy. Jesus said that all doctrines of men, traditions, practices, ideas, have one of two origins. They are from heaven or they are from men. If I understand scripture correctly, the magistrate is a minister of God appointed to do justice. And I take that in a stricter sense than a lot of people might. Kind of the same way that people view worship, right? A lot of people uh, embrace what's called the normative view of worship, the normative principle of worship. If the Bible doesn't say not to do it, it's okay to do it. Okay, well, that's, that's one approach, right? The regular principle of worship is to say, if God didn't say to do it, you shouldn't do it in worship. I kind of take that idea with the government. I, I think the government is supposed to do what God put them on earth to do Amen. and no more. In other words, a society that actually operates under biblical law would have a very limited government. And I think that's a good thing. But you could disagree with that, and the other 11 and a half points would stand intact. The question is, are magistrates free to act independently of divine commission? And if not, where do they find the authority for doing otherwise? Where do they find their jurisdiction? Where do they find their responsibilities? Where are their limits outlined? You could say the Constitution. You could say the will of the people. You could say the historical tradition of the nation. You can, you can answer that a number of ways. I'm going to argue that their jurisdiction, their powers, their responsibilities, their limits are outlined and delimited in the word of God. So that rather than an expansive, coercive, and authoritarian system, a theocratic government model would be limited, benevolent, and designed to promote and protect freedom for human flourishing. The last point is this. Number 12, the morally proper way for Christians to correct social evils that are not under the lawful jurisdiction of the state is by means of voluntary and charitable enterprises or the censures of the home, church, and marketplace, even as the appropriate method for changing the political order of civil law is not through violent revolution, but through dependence on regeneration, re-education, and gradual legal reform. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. Do we believe that prayer and the preaching of the gospel can accomplish more than a political election? And if we don't, shame on us. We should repent of that spirit. And that doesn't mean that we should withdraw from the political process. I know that there are parts of the Reformed tradition that say we should. I disagree with that vehemently. But I do believe that the way forward is regeneration, not revolution, as Rustin used to say. 
I do also believe, growing out of the last point on the other side of your page, that if the government is not authorized by God to be involved in a particular aspect of society, they ought not to be involved. And that instead families, churches, free voluntary associations of interested parties should attend to those needs rather than creating bureaucracies. It is impossible to please God without faith, and faith comes by hearing God's word. The way to reform society is not by top-down policy and government coercion, but by faithful preaching, Christian love, strong churches and families, and discipling the nations. That doesn't mean you should not vote. It does not mean Christians should not run for elected office. It does not mean that we should not speak prophetically to the powers that be. All of those things we should do. But it means that just as we sang in Psalm 62, we look to the Lord for salvation, not to political parties, not to particular candidates, not to political processes. Economic or theonomic ethics is an approach to understanding morality and justice in terms of God's law. And theocratic governance, remember the God rule, theocratic governance is the application of theonomy to government jurisdiction and action. The goal is not a Christian version of Sharia law or any kind of Christian totalitarianism. The goal is a just society that is governed by God's moral law for the good of mankind, and for the glory of God. I've given you several quotes there that we have not um, looked at thus far. Let me just draw your attention there for just a moment. Um, Again, I told you last week that chapter 20 of book 4 in Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, he says several things that non-theonomists or anti-theonomists will say, see, Calvin was obviously not a theonomist. Read that in context. You say, well, we could have a conversation about that. Everything else in the chapter sure sounds like a theonomist. Um, Regardless, Calvin is prior to some of the specific debates and talking points and terminology that would later be associated with these ideas. But he does say these things. And and, and by the way, I I, I personally, I I I don't want to be controversial or disrespectful, but I don't care if Calvin was a theonomist or not. I'm only interested in what does the Bible say that we ought to be, right? How should we think? The the term theonomy is not actually in the Bible, so I could take it or leave it, right? I'm just interested in the ideas that we're talking about. And with regard to the ideas, listen to some of the things that Calvin says in that uh, that particular work, the Institutes. At the end of the Institutes, you may know, he has a section of 100 aphorisms, and he says this in in point 92, quote, The magistrate is God's vicegerent, the father of his country, the guardian of the laws, the administrator of justice, the defender of the church, end quote. In book 4, chapter 20, section 9, he said this, quote, The duty of magistrates, its nature, as described by the word of God and the things in which it consists, I will here indicate in passing that it extends to both tables of the law, did Scripture not teach, we might learn from profane writers. Now, understand what he's saying. He's saying both tables of the Ten Commandments, all Ten Commandments, the religious and the social, are under the uh, general jurisdiction of the magistrate. In other words, he he has responsibilities in these areas. And he's saying even if Scripture didn't teach that, Calvin's argued already that it does teach that, but he says even if Scripture didn't teach that, you could learn that by reading the, the Roman authors. You could learn that reading the Greek authors. You could learn that from profane writers. 
For no man has discoursed of the duty of magistrates, the enacting of laws, and the common weal without beginning with religion and divine worship. Thus all have confessed that no polity can be successfully established unless piety be its first care, and that those laws are absurd which disregard the rights of God and consult only for men. Was it John Adams who said that our Constitution is only fit for a just and believing people? Well, Calvin's saying the same thing. Seeing then that among philosophers religion holds the first place and that the same thing has always been observed with the universal consent of nations, Christian princes and magistrates may be ashamed of their heartlessness if they make it not their care. We've already shown that this office is specially assigned them by God and indeed it is right that they exert themselves in asserting and defending the honor of him whose vicegerents they are and by whose favor they rule. If you're reading Calvin there and saying, okay, so Calvin is saying that all of the nations should be Presbyterian and we should drown all the Baptists. That's not what he's actually saying. That's not actually the way that it worked out. right? But what he is saying is that if the magistrates are completely unconcerned, indifferent to religious matters in the community, it doesn't matter what else they do. The society is going to fall apart. See 21st century America. This rebukes the folly of those who would neglect the care of divine things and devote themselves merely to the administration of justice among men, as if God had appointed rulers in his own name to decide earthly controversies and omitted what was of far greater moment, his own pure worship as prescribed by his law. They are the ordained guardians and vindicators of public innocence, modesty, honor, and tranquility, so that it should be their only study to provide for the common peace and safety." But as rulers cannot do this unless they protect the good against the injuries of the bad and give aid and protection to the oppressed, they are armed with power to curb manifest evildoers and criminals by whose misconduct the public tranquility is disturbed or harassed. And then he goes on to say, in doing this, he is executing the judgment of God. And that things that are forbidden to the private individual are permitted to the magistrate in his office as an outworking of God's vengeance. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. It does not say vengeance is wrong. It says vengeance doesn't belong to you, it belongs to God. God has given the sword to the civil magistrate to execute that vengeance. And if you question that, ignore the chapter division in your Bible and read in Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 17, down through verse 7 of chapter 13, and see if that is not the case. He says you should not take revenge because God has appointed the magistrate to do so. One last quote from Dr. Bonson and we'll be done. Quote, Christian political concern will advance very little indeed if it ignores the fundamental spiritual human need to have hearts changed from above. Hence, we would make evangelism, prayer, and education critical planks in the Christian strategy for eventual political change. At the same time as we are offering Christian nurture and re-education to converts, including education and socio-political morality, we must likewise engage in intellectual persuasion and apologetic appeals to the unconverted, aiming to change and correct their value systems and to promote the advantages of the Christian view on political issues. Quote. In other words, the church focuses on the mission of the church, which is discipling the nations, and teaching them to observe all things that Jesus has commanded. We need to do that in the public square. We need to do that in our homes. We need to do that in our schools. We need to do that um, in the state. Um, so that's the, that's the case. 
and uh, you can take that and chew on it, and I hope it will be edifying to you. I know that Dr. Bonson had a great deal of appreciation uh, for Rush Dooney and learned a great deal from him, and many of us continue to learn from him to this day, and yet there were very clear differences, some very uh, significant differences uh, that, uh, that developed eventually, even, even though they were contemporaries. Um, and so, uh, you know, particular personalities right now, um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, do, I don't think that it's fair to say that Rush Dooney gave theonomy a bad name. I think that uh, Dr. Bonson's name is far more attached to theonomy, and Christian Reconstruction is probably more attached uh, to Rush Dooney, um, and they've, they've all had their vociferous critics and do to this very day. Um, but I think that both men were godly men who loved the Lord, uh, who were not perfect, who made all kinds of mistakes, but, but were incredibly helpful to us. So Christian Reconstruction was a larger movement of which theonomy was one part. Uh, theonomy was one of three legs that Christian Reconstruction was kind of built around. And there were a lot of things associated with Christian Reconstruction that kind of eventually went the way of the dodo bird and you know, it's probably good that they did. There's also a lot of really good men and good materials being produced during that time and a lot of good ideas that were being promoted. So I think you want to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater to say <clears throat> there were ways in which uh, Christian Reconstruction could be critiqued profitably. Uh, there are ways that certain versions of theonomy can be critiqued profitably. I don't think that the church is nearly done um, studying through these issues because the church doesn't agree on these issues yet. Again, some of these questions can't be answered until the church, as the church, kind of acknowledges the fact that the basic principles and premises are true. And then we get into the hard work of the details and say, okay, well, if that's true, what do we do with this part? What do, how, how do we translate this idea? What, what, what is this going to look like in a completely different sort of society? Um, and, and, and I hope, you know, that work will go on as, uh, as history continues. I would argue that historically Christendom is a thing, and it was a good thing by and large. Uh, you saw it in multiple nations. You saw it uh, for large uh, stretches of time. You saw King Alfred basically bringing uh, a theonomic society, uh, you know, to the West um, uh, early on. And so, yeah, I, I think it has been practiced, and I think that it has been profitably pursued, and yet there's still so much work to be done. But, but you've got to realize <clears throat> that that is true in so many ways. Again, this will get a little bit into your eschatology, right, whether you think that, you know, Jesus is just right around the corner or if he's still got a ways to, to go to get here. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that the church has not yet fully understood or fully worked out or fully implemented um, in many ways, we, we see the church incredibly fractured and fragmented in just tragic ways. And I think you see the same thing in the, the you know, politics and, and sociopolitical ethics. So though that doesn't necessarily undermine the basic thesis. Uh, I think the question is, is this the way that Scripture would have us handle this part of God's law? And if so, how do we then begin promoting that in a, in a way that, the world will embrace. Yeah. Anything else? Okay, well, I appreciate your patience, your attention, your participation. I hope it's profitable. It might have bored some of you to tears, 
but, uh, but at least it's given uh, a few of you some things to really chew on and think about. I'd be happy to continue the conversation. This is a very cursory introduction, not planning on doing anything else on this for a little while, but I'd be happy to continue studying and talking about it with you, okay, and uh, give you reading resources and suggestions uh, if you think that would be beneficial. Gracious God and Father, we are thankful for your love, for your grace, for your goodness, for your Son, who as Lord of all lords and King of all kings, is become our Savior and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We pray, O God, that more and more we would see the outworking of his authority and his benevolent rule in all of the nations of this earth. We know, O Father, that any nation that stands against you stands in the way of judgment, and yet righteousness exalts a nation and will be a blessing to its people. And so we pray, O God, for that blessing, not only for our nation, but for every nation under heaven, and that you would help us to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves as we seek to do your will and promote your truth. Bless us as we return to our homes and prepare our hearts for the Lord's day. We pray in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen. All right. God bless you. Good to see you all tonight.